I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christian leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, and I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. This week, we're talking to Daryl Wanzer Serrano about a really cool book he wrote called The New York Young Lords and the Struggle for Liberation. Uh, that book was published in 2015 by Temple University Press. Uh, it's a really neat book that's not just about the New York Young Lords, but it's uh, also about rhetoric and decolonial theory, all of the kinds of things that we on this podcast love. Um, there's a really specific um, bit in there uh, about this thing called the church offensive that we're going to focus on, particularly where the Young Lords uh, basically seize a church. So I don't know how I get you any more excited than just saying those things. <laughs> You can also check out this other book that he wrote called The Young Lords, A Reader uh, from New York University Press. It's another sort of collection of essays about the Young Lords in particular. The Young Lords, uh, I didn't really know very much about until we started kind of getting into the research for this episode, but they are a really interesting movement with, uh, I think, a lot of good ideas and something kind of we can uh, grapple with and use to think through the history of the left in the United States, uh, decolonial struggle, and also Christianity. So uh, this is a conversation that you will want to be at your full attention for. (laughs) All right, let's uh, shoot it over to Daryl. So this week on the show, we're talking with Daryl Wanzer Serrano, the author of the book, The New York Young Lords and the Struggle for Liberation. It's a really, really great book. Matt and I have been talking a lot about it. Uh, There's a lot going on in it, all kinds of different um, discourses that get involved, but in a way that doesn't feel like too cumbersome, I think. So it's very readable and really exciting and and fun to read and an inspiring text. Uh, So we'll get into that in a minute. But before we do, uh, Daryl, what have you been up to lately this summer? Anything you're particularly excited about? Um, You know, the thing that I've been working on the most this summer has been uh, some kind of disciplinary oriented projects related to the kind of status of race and rhetorical studies. Um, There was a really cool article that came out in the Journal of Communication uh, a month or two, I guess a couple of months ago now called Hashtag Communication So White. Um, And it did a a kind of neat, um, both quantitative and critical analysis of uh, the stuff that's been published in the major communication studies journals over the last, like, I think since 1990. Um, And one of the things that it showed is that rhetorical studies, that my kind of subdisciplinary home, uh, is kind of the worst. Um, And so there's some various projects that I've been working on getting involved in. Uh, to help address that in the kind of disciplinary scholarship in my field. Wow, that's really cool. That sounds really important. <laughs> it's fun. I mean, it's it's a it's a really important topic. It's a really you know it's 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 incredibly problematic that since 1990, I think something like only a dozen articles by scholars of color have been published in our flagship journal, um, and. You know, so being able to address that and think kind of critically um, about what the future can hold and what kinds of things scholars can be doing uh, to address this problem, uh, I think is is really exciting. And I'm, I'm, I feel lucky to have the opportunity to do it, um, particularly in the outlets that I'll be doing it in. So, yeah, that's great. Uh, let us know when you uh, get some of that going. For sure. Be glad to follow that up. Um, Matt, what have you been up to this summer? Um, kind of a lot. Uh, being an academic in the summer is so awesome because I can do everything I meant to do all school year. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I uh, finished up a few journal articles and they're going to be published soon. Um, 
working on that kind of stuff. I sent out a, um, a book proposal feeling really uh, productive, <laughs> like the strangest feeling in the world, actually. Uh, but yeah, been cool. Dean, what are you doing? Nice. <laughs> uh, also pretty busy. I went to a Lusa Rigoray conference recently, and that was my big thing I was excited about. So that was really good and saw some friends and uh, went to Niagara Falls, which is really great. Uh, the Canadian side of Niagara Falls is really funny because you there's all you know the beauty of the falls and the majesty of a bunch of water falling into a bunch of other water it's very exciting <laughs> uh but nearby the falls is just the biggest sort of tourist trap ever, that i've ever seen it's like riddled with uh, like ripley's wax museums and uh like weird kind of movie theaters and like a spongebob 4d ride like it's very sort of culture industry to the max uh so i always love going there because the juxtaposition is just actually really fun and uh my partner Emily and I just try to like give ourselves over to it, have a good time. So it was pretty great. It was a good weekend. <laughs> Can I ask a question? What is a SpongeBob yeah. 4D ride? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Regrettably, uh, I would have gone on it. In fact, it was my it was my biggest uh, regret leaving. We like we don't have a car, so we have to rent a car. Uh, so it was just sort of, the window was just closing on when we could have spent the time there before we had to return it. So I'm just gonna have to go back. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> um great well everybody's super busy but sounds like a pretty good summer so far uh maybe we should jump into the book here so whenever we talk with an author daryl we always ask them to give a little bit of like an elevator pitch for the article or book that we're talking about so uh what made you want to write this book about the young lords in new york and what did you hope to accomplish by writing it um i mean the the elevator pitch version of that is that um i wanted to write a scholarly monograph on the young lords in part because um, I feel like this group, uh, which is, I think, one of the most significant, if arguably the most significant group of the uh, kind of radical leftist group, the Puerto Rican diaspora, uh, has been so understudied. Um, you know, prior to uh, prior to this book, I don't think there was another uh, kind of scholarly monograph on the Young Lords. Prior to my uh, my previous book, which was an edited collection, an anthology of of primary texts on them. Um, those materials really weren't available outside of special collections and um, some stuff on microfilm too. So I wanted to be able to uh, to, to to write a, a kind of critical rhetorical history of the young lords uh, to be able to uh, to give people something to hold on to and something to enter into a conversation about the history and ideas of that important group. Um, the kind of longer version of that answer is that it was. You know, this project was an incredibly transformative experience for me uh, that started in graduate school. Um, you know, I, I'd been wanting to write, uh, I'd been planning to write a dissertation, and I talk about this in the book, actually. <laughs> I'd planning to write a dissertation on uh, ballots as the sublime object of democracy, a kind of, you know, Zizakian, Election 2000-inspired kind of project. Um, and it wasn't until my last semester of what was what was supposed to be my last semester of coursework, uh, that I stumbled upon the young lords, and it really, it really changed me. I mean, this was a, I could really identify with them uh, as, as uh, you know, kind of first generation college student, second generation Puerto Rican, um, who had been kind of, you know, detached from uh, my history in some significant ways. Uh, and so coming across the young lords, I, I realized at that point that I, I had to do work on them, and so. It kind of threw my whole, you know, graduate degree into a bit of a whirlwind there at the end, uh, and because I was deviating from the plan and ended up sticking around for extra coursework, and and it all worked out. But um, it really set me off on a path that uh, that I was uh, that I'm glad that I took. Um, that's great. Um, the book is really amazing. It's something, I mean, I've just, I've not finished it yet, but reading through it, um, I think everything you said kind of shines through and just like your writing and the way you approach it. I think I really like it too, because it's not just like a straightforward history, but you really go into some of the rhetoric behind it. And even all the connections you're making constantly with uh, decolonial theory is so strong. Well, um, we can get to maybe some of that and the importance of it in a bit, but um for people who have never heard of the Young Lords, because you, like you mentioned, there's never been sort of a monograph like this before, could you set the historical stage for us a little bit? Like, um, 
when were they operating? What were they like? What was sort of the impetus behind the Young Lords? Sure. Um, so the Young Lords actually started as a kind of turf gang in Chicago in 1959. Um, it was a, a collection of, of some young folks who, uh, who who kind of banded together to uh, to protect their neighborhood and to have some kind of uh, strength through unity. Um, in 1968, the leader of that gang, a guy named uh, Jose Chacha Jimenez, uh, was in jail in the Cook County Jail, um, and had a kind of a kind of conversion experience. He actually talks about it through this uh, this rhetoric of conversion, um, and it was you know something that that came from his engagement of. Uh, Thomas Mert, uh, uh, Merton's Seven Story Mountain, um, and the autobiography of, of Malcolm X, along with some other kind of black radical uh, writing, and he realized that he needed to 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 turn the organization political. And so, uh, upon his release, uh, he you know declared that they would be a street political organization. Um, and they started working in coalition with others, especially the Black Panthers, uh, but also a group of kind of radical uh, white Appalachian folks named the Young Patriots, um, and uh, turned their attention to uh, to kind of transforming the community. So that's how it started in Chicago, and then in New York, um, it's it's sort of a different, you know, it's a very different story of development where the the people who are kind of you know leading the formation of the organization. Uh, were you know in college uh, uh, they started it as kind of a study group in some ways where they were wanting to fill in the gaps that they were finding they they, they weren't getting in their education um, and they uh, they found this model in the Chicago uh, young lords uh, when they were reading an interview of Cha Cha Jimenez in the in the Black Panthers newspaper, um, and so they kind of realized that they they that's what they wanted to do, and so they went out. Uh, they they got permission uh, from Cha Cha to, uh, to 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 have a charter for a New York chapter, um, and on July 26, 1969, they formed. And so they were. Uh, you know, from from sixty nine to nineteen seventy to May nineteen seventy, they were they were affiliated with the Chicago group as the Young Lords organization. In May nineteen seventy, they split and became the Young Lords Party. Um, and then uh, in nineteen seventy two, they had another transformation uh, w- would be their final one and became the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization. Um, and I can talk more about that tra- those transitions if you'd like, but. Uh, they were basically a kind of, you know, a grassroots street political organization uh, that engaged in a lot of uh, community service and education programs that revolved around uh, health, uh, politics, uh, and in general, I, I think decolonizing their community, right? Establishing uh, kind of practices of self-determination over land and institutions um, and enlisting the people in that process. Hmm. Uh, that's so cool. We should maybe talk a little bit about some of those transitions. Um, maybe we'll do that in in a minute. Uh, when we start talking about the uh, the church offensive, uh, as as you call it, but um, to maybe fill out a little bit more of the history and kind of the beginning, and then this might kind of bleed into that conversation. But uh, like the Black Panthers, the Young Lords ended up with a, a program and and a platform. Uh, so we were kind of reading through that this week, and it's a pretty amazing series of positions. Uh, but one thing they do is intentionally connect their struggle to other national liber- liberation struggles, um, as you just mentioned, to the struggle of poor whites, organized poor whites, and uh, also to communism and uh, these kind of really radical political movements. Uh, what were their political associations like? Like, how did those coalitions form, and what did they look like in New York or elsewhere? Yeah, I mean... So it, it's it's complicated and not um, the the complicated part is that uh, one of the things that kind of uh, that, that drew me to the young lords and that still kind of makes me amazed at them in their most in their strongest period of activism was that they were so kind of ecumenical in their ideology right they weren't hardliners uh, in any one kind of position of orthodoxy um, and that allowed them. Um, 
really encourage them to uh, to be pretty flexible in who they would work with and what they would do. Um, and so, you know, as, well, as I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about the church offensive, you know, they didn't just go in and take over from the very beginning. They tried to work through the kind of structures of the church uh, in order to be able to do the kinds of things that they wanted to do. And so they were always open to be working with people. Now, Specifically, they worked very closely, and this got started in Chicago, with groups like the Panthers and the Young Patriots. And in fact, in Chicago, they called that the Rainbow Coalition. This is pre-Jesse Jackson. This was the original Rainbow Coalition. Um, and uh, they, you know, they, it, was a, it was a kind of organize your own approach uh, where they were organizing within the kind of, you know, the kind of uh, Latino, Latino communities. Um, but they wanted to work in coalition with folks who were who were really in you know in the same struggle in a lot of ways, right? Um, and in New York, that meant that they had uh, they had a really strong partnership with the with the Black Panthers. Um, you know, some of the members of the Young Lords uh, and friends of the Young Lords had uh, you know prior to the Young Lords' existence had really you know tried finding a home in the Black Panthers. Um, and ultimately that, you know, for, for a lot of them that didn't work out um, and kind of created the impetus in some ways for them to, to, to form and join the Young Lords. Uh, but they were always kind of working with their, you know, really just cross town um, uh, uh, compatriots. Um, they got ideas uh, from them in part. Right. So like the breakfast programs were things that the Panthers really spearheaded around the country. Um, they learned lessons from them. Right? The, the Panthers were, you know, they were more experienced in this. Um, uh, and they had each other's backs. Um, so it, it was, it was, there were some, there were some pretty, you know, some pretty tight connections that were formed, uh, between the groups and with other groups in the community too. Um, I think with the important focus always that, uh, the, the, the recognition that, uh, that some organizations uh, had a better grasp uh, and or were better equipped to deal with particular situations and particular problems and particular issues uh, than others. Um, in, within their platform uh, that we were just mentioning there a little bit, um, there's some like really interesting points kind of along the way. Um, like Dean mentioned a minute ago, they were working uh, sort of towards communism and towards different ideas of liberation. One of the really interesting parts of their platform to me uh, was about the internal organization of the Young Lords and um, how they were specifically uh, targeting uh, oppressive machismo and instead, uh, and they said instead of like uh, machismo sort of for the sake of masculinity, but instead for the sake of revolution, um, they also insisted on the liberation of women uh, as well. So how did they carry this type of um, this type of feeling out in their in their movement specifically? Like, what did this look like when they actually got to it? Yeah, you know, it really it really changed form, right? So there's there's two versions of the platform. There's the the kind of first one from October 1969, uh, and then there's the second one, which I think is first published in November 1970. Um, and the, you know, there's there's a there are definitely some strong similarities. There's some just you know straight up reproduction of points between the two uh, 13 point programs and uh, program and platform documents. Um, but on the issue of kind of uh, women and machismo uh, in the organization, that's where there's some of the most radical shift. So if you'll permit me, um, the, you know, the original program and platform, uh, point number 10 uh, began, we want equality for women, machismo must be revolutionary, not oppressive. Uh, and then in the revised platform, point number five, we want equality for women down with machismo and male chauvinism. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I think what that reflects uh, is, is a few things. I mean, it reflects a, a really significant struggle that took place within the organization for uh, women's voices to be heard. Uh, when the organization first formed, it was uh, essentially an all-male leadership. Um, and that was reflected in things like this idea that machismo could somehow be revolutionary and not oppressive, um, as as one of the women of the Young Lords, uh, you know, replied uh, to that, you know, 
how how can that be right is there is there is there such a thing as revolutionary racism um no there isn't uh, so we have to you know we have to kind of put that in check a little bit um and rethink the way that we're that we're that we're approaching issues of uh, gender and equality um and so you know there was uh i'm not sure how much detail you want me to get into here but uh, I, I do talk about this a lot in the book. I mean, there was a, a, a prolonged period of kind of education and struggle within the organization um, that led to the formation of the Women's Union um, and also led to uh, a, a moment where um, after the Central Committee, uh, who had, again at the time was all men, uh, kind of disappeared for a period of time, uh, the membership, the, the kind of um, the cadre of the organization uh, voted uh, uh, voted a few changes in, right? Uh, one is that they, they essentially kind of temporarily demoted everyone from the Central Committee until they could engage in enough kind of self-criticism uh, to be able to uh, to take on the responsibility of that of their roles again. Um, the other thing was that they uh, they insisted that women be part of the leadership of the organization um, and that there be a kind of uh, gender parity in uh, all of the organizing and activities of the organization. Right. So um, if, you know, men and women would go out uh, together to sell the newspaper, to uh, to speak at events and things like that. Um, and uh, that led to some really, uh, you know, some really kind of. Uh, profound and complex views about the intersections of race uh, and uh, you know, racism and sexism and capitalism and colonialism uh, that uh, that are spelled out really nicely in their position paper on women, uh, but are also, I think, uh, developed well in the, the book that they published in 1971 called Palante, the Young Lord's Party. Hmm. Uh... <laughs> There's so much that you do in your book to kind of draw out the different rhetorical developments that happen within the party. I think that's actually one of the most valuable things I found in the text, because uh, it's one thing to read histories of revolutionary movements, and they can be very inspiring and interesting. But one thing that you kind of go out of your way to point out uh, in, in a way that's really valuable is that there's a real evolution of thinking, and there's a kind of thinking that emerges out of all these experiments Uh and out of the the work of actually trying to imagine what this movement might look like, uh, that willingness to change, and it, you called it earlier being flexible, um, just seems like a really important kind of uh, lesson, I guess, from the young lords. Yeah, and it was. It, 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 I think it was, and and I think I think the the its opposite, right, is also an important lesson uh, because when they when they became the Puerto Rican Revolutionary Workers Organization in 1972. Uh, they basically stopped that flexibility um, and um, they stopped what I think was one of their greatest strengths was that they listened to the people of the community. <laughs> um, that started going away a bit, right? They started taking this position of, um, you know, they basically uh, quit doing their various serve the people programs in the community uh, and went to work in factories trying to unionize people. Um, and you know, that, uh, in, in doing so they were no longer, uh, engaging in those kinds of, you know, what I call that, that decolonial ethic of love that involves listening to the voices of people in the community that, that, that were the strength of their initial activism. I mean, that's why they did the garbage offensive when they let everything off. That's, that's really, you know, how they developed their position in the church offensive, um, and, you know, really all those early programming and service programs uh, were were coming from the people in the community and the needs of the people in the community, right? And putting that into conversation with all of this really radical theory that they'd been reading, like Franz Fanon and and Karl Marx and um, and others. So, well, we can get to the church offensive uh, in a minute, and I'm really excited to because it's pretty much the coolest thing um but it might be uh, important to introduce the garbage offensive first as a background for that since it's kind of the precursor you talk about the garbage offensive as a good example of what you call delinking from coloniality which has some bigger um bigger ramifications in the church offensive too so what did uh, the garbage offensive look like how's it play into the dynamics of coloniality and decoloniality that you trace throughout the book sure 
so the garbage offensive was uh, was their kind of like inaugural you know point of activism. Um, while they were uh, going through the kind of process of of opening this charter um, in the in, in New York. Uh, they started kind of, they were trying to figure out like what they should be doing um, and kind of knew that like going around and just kind of lecturing people about, you know, Fanon or Marx uh, wasn't really going to be the ticket, right? Um, and so uh, the, the very first thing that they did was they went around and just kind of asked people like, hey, w- what's, you know, what's going on? What needs to be fixed? Like, what do you think the biggest problem is? Um, and that very, you know, that very act of going and talking and listening um, and internalizing that, um, I think is, you know, is itself a kind of decolonial practice, right? Especially in a community like East Harlem or El Barrio at that time, uh, you know, people weren't asked that, right? They were told what to do. It was assumed that they wouldn't be interested in, in a question like that. Um, and so uh, they figured out the, the the problem was garbage, right? I mean, the, the 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 it was filling the streets, it was filling empty lots. People, you know, kids would cut themselves on rusty metal, and um, the city wasn't picking up the trash in the same way that it did in white neighborhoods. Um, and so uh, they simply went around and started picking up garbage and uh, putting it in bags and putting it in trash cans and. Um, they did that, uh, you know, for, uh, for, for several weeks. Um, and you know, the city kind of kept leaving it there. They weren't, they still weren't picking it up regularly enough. Uh, it would get, you know, thrown back out into the street. Um, and so they went to the department of sanitation and asked for some more supplies one day, um, were told no. Uh, and so they took them. Um, and that act of defiance kind of inspired uh, inspired people, uh, inspired people in the community who who initially were like, you know, what are these what are these kids doing? Uh, they're just cleaning up trash. Like, why would they be doing that? Um, uh, and that led to a kind of escalation uh, in this, and really, you know, what, why why I think some of the members started calling it the garbage offensive. Uh, it started with people uh, taking the trash uh, and and uh, putting it in the street to block traffic, knowing that uh, if cars and buses couldn't make it down into this uh, in, into the city, uh, that uh, people weren't you know businesses weren't making money, uh, and that would hopefully solve the problem. Uh, and it didn't because you know a bus could just push it out of the way. Uh, and so some enterprising members of the community decided to start lighting it on fire. Uh, <laughs> and they did that uh, across multiple intersections sections uh covering several blocks uh major thoroughfares uh and uh and that got the city's attention a little bit um now now the the kind of success of it was was short-lived um and i mean it's still like you know if you've ever been to new york city and you've ever uh, you know walked around uh you know between like east harlem versus midtown right you know that the city uh takes their responsibility differently in each of those neighborhoods um in no small part i think because of the makeup of the of the neighborhoods um but the kind of real success of it was uh was that they really marked off their community as something new right they established that this wasn't a community of a bunch of docile Puerto Ricans who were going to just kind of take it from the city. Uh, they marked it off as a colonized zone, uh, and that practice of naming it, right, of kind of establishing what this community was, had power. Uh, and I talk about it in the book as it's a kind of act of of, uh, of epistemic disobedience, right? Uh, breaking from the way that they'd been taught to think about uh, their community and their relationship to land, um, and remarking that space as something different, right? As a space that that was radical, uh, and the people in that space could occupy uh, kind of positions of, uh, of that, that were radical as well, uh, and so. That really, uh, you know, it galvanized a lot of support from the community. It got them known, um, uh, and it really started that process of transforming the community and the people in it. Um, you know, after the garbage offensive was done, they decided to kind of like take a step back and not do any more direct action on on that kind of scale, and instead turn attention to what they thought were were the other big problems in the community, which were health related, um, principally dealing with 
tuberculosis, which was a big problem, uh, often undiagnosed, uh, and lead poisoning, which was a huge problem in these uh, you know, tenements run by slumlords. Huh. Uh, that idea that like lighting a bunch of garbage on fire is sort of a rhetorical move, I think is so fascinating and important. Um, just a really interesting way of looking at actions, uh, where actions have something to say, you know, they're not just like, um, irrational outbursts or something like that, but like something being created in that instance, I think is really inspiring. Uh, and maybe that's a good segue into talking about the people's church, uh, because there's all kinds of really great things you draw, uh, similarly there. So, um, to get into it, we'll play a little bit of audio from a film that you sent to us. Uh, forgive my Spanish pronunciation, but uh, <laughs> El Pueblo Se Levanta. And uh, so here is uh, Juan Gonzalez talking from inside First Spanish Methodist Church in New York. The main thing that, that we're clear on is that it's such a simple thing to give us space. And now that we've gotten into this church and eaten here and been here for hours, we know what a big place it is. It's incredible, the space in this church all unused, you know, uh, never open to the community. And it's just incredible to us how such a simple thing like granting a space has resulted in so many heads being busted and so much trouble in East Harlem. And our only understanding of that has to be that religion, you know, organized religion has so enslaved our people, has so destroyed their minds, the thinking about salvation in the hereafter, they refuse to deal with the conditions that they have now and with the oppression that they have now. The people who come to this church are mostly Puerto Ricans who have already raised themselves to a certain standards. Many of them have left the community. They no longer relate to the community except to drive in on Sundays and go to services. And uh, it's amazing to us how people can talk about, you know, uh, Jesus who walked among the poor, the, the poorest and most oppressed, the prostitutes, the drug addicts of his time, that these people can claim to be Christians, right? They've forgotten that it was Jesus who said, that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they forget that it was Jesus who said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And they forget that it was Jesus who said, feed the, feed the hungry and clothe the poor. And this is what we're after. We're after following uh, the tenets and the spirit of Christianity, not the letter of Christianity, of those Bibles that have perverted Jesus' real revolutionary uh, and, and social consciousness. So uh, there's so much going on in this clip uh, that we should get into, but maybe we could start with the occupation itself and get an idea of what exactly is going on and what the context of that uh, clip is. So Gonzalez talks about some violence that resulted uh, around the church, um, and you mentioned a confrontation with police early on. Uh, can you kind of recall that scene? Like what leads, what kind of builds up into this moment? What's in the background and then what is kind of happening uh, that would prompt a, a police encounter when it sort of all comes to a head. Yeah, so let me uh, let me get up to that point of the confrontation. Um, you know, the after the garbage offensive I was just mentioning, they kind of took that break from direct action to focus on these health programs and also just general organizing. Um, and uh, part of what they were developing was were, was, the, was this commitment to self-determination, uh, self-determination of land uh, and of institutions, uh, which was an important point in their program. Um, and so, you know, starting, uh, you know, in, I believe it's late October 1969, uh, they're, they're kind of going around to various churches within the community. I mean, church, you know, churches are important. Churches are important to, to, to Latino communities, uh, to all communities, really. Um, and so they start going around and seeing like, hey, what are these, what are these institutions that are so kind of central to the lives of people in the community actually doing for the community? And it turns out quite a bit, right? Uh, most churches, you know, don't just do their Sunday services. They're doing after school programs and other kinds of service programs to help their parishioners and help the local community. Um, well, one of the churches, the first, first Spanish Methodist church, uh, which which sits at a very kind of like central location in El Barrio, um, wasn't really doing a whole lot. Uh, they, you know, according to the the Young Lords accounts, uh, they'd have their they'd open up for church services on Sunday, um, and that was it. Right, they weren't open any other days. 
Um, and so they approached the church about uh, doing a few programs uh, out of their facilities. So they wanted to do this breakfast program. They wanted to do some political education programming um, and some health programming. Um, those discussions didn't go so well for a few reasons. Uh, first, the church congregation was evangelical and conservative. Right? So in espousing the kind of leftist beliefs that they did, the young lords were, uh, you know, the young lords were fairly resistant to organized religion, as we just heard. Um, uh, even if many of the members have had religious backgrounds, uh, those attitudes weren't kind of particularly welcomed by the leadership and membership of the church. Uh, and so the, the kind of ideological tension between what the young lords advocated politically, right, decolonial liberation, socialist redistribution, uh, the, the kind of gap between that and what the church espoused politically and spiritually, spiritually appeared to be really insurmountable. Okay. The second problem uh, was that the pastor uh, was an anti-Castro-Cuban exile. So, you know, the young lords were, you know, pro-Castro and more important, more prominently pro-Che. Uh, so, you know, the images and words of, of Che, they, they had, you know, in a lot of their programming. Um, and so that wasn't a very good matchup. Um, and the third problem was that the vast majority of the leadership and the membership of the church uh you know, and the young lords assessment didn't really reside in the community. Um, and so they didn't see a pressing need to expend church resources, even if that's just space, uh, to, su to support the programs in that neighborhood. Um, and so a, a spokesperson for the church explained uh, their resistance like this, and I'm quoting here. The first Spanish church is a conservative church, as are most of our evangelical Spanish churches. The tactics of the young lords and their ideology have been offensive to the people of the local congregation, end quote. Um, and so, you know, it was a it was a pretty, you know, there were there were some significant constraints that the young lords faced in making these requests of the church. But they, you know, they decided to kind of keep going uh, and attend uh, services and be a presence in that space. So, as I mentioned, that started in late October 1969. On December 7th is when we have that clash with the police. Um, and so what happened was they had been sitting in on service again. Um, and uh, when a period of kind of free testimony opened up, uh, Felipe Luciano uh, stood up uh, and spoke. Uh, as he started speaking, uh, the police moved in. They'd been kind of waiting. Uh, and there was a, a bit of a brawl. Um, several people were injured. Uh, you know, the biggest injuries were, uh, were on F Felipe uh, Luciano, who, uh, who broke his arm. Uh, and 14 people were arrested. Um, and that, but that didn't stop what the young lords were trying to do. They kept, you know, they, they immediately held a rally outside uh, and kept showing up week after week. Um, so a couple weeks after that, on December 21st, uh, they had a meeting with the lay board after services, um, and 150 members of the young lords attended that service. Um, the meeting with the lay board didn't go well, and so on uh, the next Sunday, on December 28th, uh, after the parishioners left uh, and Juan Gonzalez tried to speak, um, they basically took the church. They boarded it up, um, they locked everyone else out, um, and uh, they declared it liberated territory. So the, the church offensive is so interesting to me. I mean, the whole thing is absolutely wild that this like went down. Um, but I guess like to me, the most sort of provoking and kind of like funny thing about the whole event is or, or series event is that like you, you note that there are these parishioners who are really conservative and the church is conservative, which is definitely not hard for us to imagine. Um, and all these young Lord supporters who like end up attending these services and kind of like being with these people. Um, and uh, eventually the young Lords, you know, they, they give up trying to negotiate and they take the space for themselves. But before that, there is this kind of like patient negotiation where it seems like uh, Luciano's words kind of become part of like the, the liturgy itself, or at least part of the church service. Um, so how did like the church leadership and the members react to those appeals, the kind of consistent, uh, the consistent appeals after the sermon was over? Yeah. I mean, mostly by ignoring them. 
Um, you know, one of the things that they, uh, the, the, the young lords would recount uh, in their in their t- in their retellings of the tale uh, is that you know people would just leave. Um, and for the most part, you know, people just weren't willing to listen. They were just like, okay, we're out of here. Like service is done. We're gone. <laughs> um, you know, some were willing to listen. Um, uh, but ultimately, there were some 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 pretty significant sticking points, right? Mostly around things other than the breakfast program, and and those are sticking points that I think are rooted in those ideological differences that they had. Um, you know, they the, the, they didn't want uh, the church didn't want these uh, these young socialist radicals to come in. Uh, and be using their space to poison other people's minds, uh, but I think it is. But I think it is fascinating and important that uh, that they were so patient, uh, that the young lords were so patient uh, and persistent, uh, and trying to kind of like work with the church, trying to basically get them to hear them. Right? Uh, you know, this kind of goes goes back to that point that I let off with talking about the garbage offensive. You know, listening, right, and the the kind of like self-criticism the truly listening entails is something that they were trying to model and get other people to practice as well ultimately <laughs> unsuccessfully in this particular instance right and, and <laughs> that you know the, the church wasn't really willing to listen to them yeah uh i was just thinking too a little bit about the scene here because um you have some figures in the book and i think you know there's around like 80 parishioners uh who regularly go to the church and then there's 150 young lords who show up a few times, so like nearly double the the typical church service, and it's it's so funny, right? Because every every pastor longs for you know the day where their congregation like is almost triple the size that it was before, um, and uh, naturally that's not not the case here. It's it's really funny to imagine you know for for a little while I went to a conservative evangelical church when I was an adolescent. And uh, imagining, like, a group of socialists showing up and, like, participating and, like, waiting their turn and then standing up and talking and then having the cops, like, bust them up. Like, that is a scene that I can't even sort of think about. There's something somewhat comical about it, you know, that they are so patient and and polite about it. Um, And I think uh, it's cool that as you were talking earlier about some of the other kind of strategies they've had, uh, you get this real sense that they're trying to find a way in that actually kind of makes sense. You know, they're not just coming in and like uh, imposing like their platform or program or whatever, even though they're committed to it uh, or like their ideals, but they're trying to to connect with, with language that seems to track. Um, And I think that comes out really well in that Gonzalez quote we heard. So maybe we can talk a little more about that. So um, the way that he explains the occupation is interesting because he says the young lords are uh, invoking like the spirit of Christianity um, against the like what we might call the dead letter being followed in the church. Uh, so do you think there was a kind of like liberation theology at work among the young lords, like trying to really appropriate Christian imagery and not even in a, you know, uh, like um, cynical way, but in a way that sort of makes sense, like that would appeal to actual Christians. How do you think that that language may have connected with people that they wanted to empower or like hopefully that they wanted to empower? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think there's a there's a, a, a long tradition with that, uh, with, with doing just that within Puerto Rican communities, right? When we look at the ways in which Puerto Ricans, uh, particularly on the island, uh, made sense and, and created compatibilities between um, kind of old uh, uh, practices of African religiosity and spiritualism uh, in combination with Catholicism, right? Um, and so I think that there's uh, that there is this kind of long tradition of trying to create those compatibilities and trying to make sense um, out of uh, out of things, given the kind of constraints and affordances of the terms that are available for them. Now, whether that was a that was explicitly or an intentionally a kind of liberation theology, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, I think that it was more, uh, you know, my sense is that it's more a kind of latching onto these elements of Christianity and of, 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 uh, of, of kind of Jesus's teachings, um, that, you know, that kind of struck a, struck a tone with them, right. In terms of that kind of social justice message, uh, and, and knowing that they couldn't just come in and say, Hey, 
religion is the opiate of the masses, get over yourselves, right? That's not going to go over particularly well <laughs> with people mm -hmm. you know, who their whole lives have been brought up in a kind of, you know, in, in, in a, a somewhat religious context. Um, and so I think acknowledging that and saying, okay, well, you know, what Jesus taught us, right, is really important. Like, we're down with all of that. It's, you know, it's these kinds of, it's the system, right, that is the problem, um, which is, you know, which is really consistent with their kind of like Marcusean, um, you know, uh, systemic kind of critique. Uh, well, thinking more about that, like, symbolism uh, alongside Christianity, um, reading about the People's Church and the Church Offensive, um, I was thinking a lot about how the first breakfast program that uh, the Black Panther Party operated was out of the basement of Father Boyle's Sacred Heart Parish in San Francisco, uh, a pretty um, monumental example, I think, um, and something that uh, resonates with the Young Lord's practice. Um, Father Boyle let the Panthers use the space voluntarily, uh, but do you think that there's something tactically useful about occupying a church as a kind of symbolic gesture? Um, I mean, like, that kind of gets to the heart of, like, why why occupy a church in the first place? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is symbolically important uh, when you consider... Uh, when you consider the kind of um, the kind of optics of of what they're doing and how that plays out in media and in the local community, right? I mean, they're you know, here. They are. They're like, all we want to do is feed poor kids, right? And this church doesn't even have enough heart to let us feed poor kids. Um, what does that say about? The structures of an institution like this. What does that say about the the, the various kind of mechanisms for colonizing our community? Um, and that's something that that kind of you know that kind of makes sense um, on both in both a kind of cognitive level and a really affective level, right? Like no one likes to see, I mean, you know, to, not to, to to turn attention to what's happening today, but no one likes to see kids in distress. Right. Because like kids shouldn't be in distress. Um, kids are like, you know, they're they're innocent creatures who uh, who just want to like play and love. Uh, and so, you know, when they're trying to like help support that to happen in the community, um, it, it, I think the, the church realized they were they were they were putting themselves in a bit of a bad position. Mm. <laughs> um, which is why ultimately, you know, while while uh, you know over a hundred people were arrested for the occupation of the of the church, um, they uh, they weren't they weren't charged you know, the charges were, were dropped. Um, yeah. But the young lords were they were they were very they were very you know they were they were particularly media savvy um, and other scholars have written about this too one uh, whose name is escaping me right now uh, did a you know really kind of like dove into the numbers of like how many articles were published in the New York Times about Puerto Ricans before the young lords and then during and after the young lords and um, and and found that the, the young lords really contributed to an increase in news coverage about Puerto Ricans and about the issues facing the Puerto Rican community, um, and they and they really knew it. Like they were, you know, they were conscious about how they looked on TV, uh, and and made sure to kind of like do things in a way that would be um, that would garner kind of you know additional support. Uh, and you know, help them achieve the goals that they wanted to achieve. Uh, that's so fascinating. I like the, I like thinking of this sort of revolutionary movement as uh, you know having like a real sort of produced aesthetic. I mean, you, you saw that with the Panthers too, right? With the uh, kind of like a uniform almost, you know, showing up in leather jackets and uh, you know sunglasses and just sort of looking uh, like cool. Uh, that's like a lot of Black Panthers talk about that as being a, a conscious decision, you know, like. You, you want a group that feels kind of attractive one way or another. And uh, to be able to have that kind of media savvy and um, understand what it takes, not just to um, not just to be like aesthetically interesting, but, but to use that in a way that creates a, a real political change or a real change in uh, media narratives is pretty impressive. Um, yeah, I, I feel like that actually speaks to the the strength of your book we've already mentioned, but the, the fact that it's not just a straightforward history or theory, but it's kind of somewhere between like you track all these different ways that there's a lot of rhetoric being employed. Um, and I kind of wonder, like this lets you do a lot of cool analyses of uh, decolonization and the people, 
specifically like the people as a, a kind of signifier that emerges out of all these um all these tactics so talk to us a little bit about maybe how the people emerges with the church offensive um like they call it a, a people's church um what does it mean to declare like a people's church in a decolonial movement you know uh being interviewed by the press and uh showing up in in tv and things like that sure i mean i think i, I think a big part of it is um you know, this notion of the people, right, isn't isn't a young lord's invention. It's not a 1960s radicals in, invention. Um, it's a it's a very kind of modern political concept um, that's intimately tied to kind of liberal democratic theory, um, and uh, and and as a slogan, right, as a kind of political slogan or what I call in the in the book an ideograph. Um, it has a lot of power, right? Within a, pol- a political culture um, that is structured by liberal democratic ideals, the people occupy a kind of central location. Now, that central location is, you know, is oftentimes fairly exclusive, right? So, in the sense that it ex- it often excludes people of color, other marginalized and colonized communities. Um, and so, you know, it's a term that uh, that doesn't, you know, in and of itself doesn't have a lot of decolonial potential. Um, but I think that's why it's an that's why it's important that the young lords latched onto that term and tried to kind of reaccent it, it through their activism at the church. Um, and they did that in, in a lot of different ways by uh, by by kind of creating less attention on kind of the ideals of individualism and focusing more on aspects of collectivism, for example, um, by, you know, visualizing the people in ways that were, uh, that were different than, uh, than, than how the people had typically been visualized in say, uh, photojournalism. Um, and I think doing that's important because, um, it, it allows them to kind of, you know, Decolonial theorists uh, like Walter Mignola will talk about the importance of changing the terms, right? Um, and, and that is important. I don't want to discount that at all. But I think it's also important to be able to kind of refill those terms, right, that already exist with a different sort of meaning, right? To be able to break them down and not just get rid of them and start using different terms all the time. Because, you know, other folks who might not be part of their community can can identify with the people, Right. Uh, in fact, you know, as an ideograph, it's something that you can't really be against. Right. Um, and so by by changing how that term is filled with meaning, uh, they're able to kind of operate within the terms of kind of dominant political institutions uh, while really kind of altering its valence uh, through this different, you know, what I call a decolonial accent. Yeah, I, I was so into uh i was so interested in that that bit um sort of midway through the chapter where you start talking about this like the ideograph of the people um there's even a, a time when you use the phrase uh ideologizing ideology sort of like the like yeah. you know you're stacking you're stacking a term that is already sort of in a reference to something uh and 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 delinking it changing it kind of setting course in a different direction could you comment on that just a little bit the uh ideologizing ideology bit i think that's just, uh, an important idea sure. Yeah, I mean that's an idea that, that that's uh, that's that's advanced by Chela Sandoval in her work in her book The Methodology of the Oppressed, uh, which is a fantastic book that I that I that I really recommend uh, recommend reading. Um, the idea there is is you know I think you I think you already described it fairly well. Right? Uh, it's this idea that you know that that rather than you know the, the rather than just finding a different terminology or finding a completely different ideology to supplant. Uh, that which is already dominant. Um, it's about kind of, you know, kind of creating the the space, finding those gaps, those fissures uh, where uh, where meaning hasn't been closed off, uh, and being able to kind of break it apart a bit and start turning it in on itself and using it against itself sometimes even. Uh, so it's a you know something like the people. It's about you know part of part of what it's about is is uh, is 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 kind of 
pointing to the unfulfilled promise of the people uh, and 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 trying to kind of you know finding ways to make good on that right uh, so in other words you know pointing out the ways in which it doesn't include uh, third world people um, and trying to, to to make those people who have been excluded uh, a central part of what that term can mean hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that makes sense. Like, it's sort of a challenge of, uh, oh, do you not want a people's church? Uh, <laughs> what's wrong with you? Why wouldn't you want the people's church? Um, I think it's yeah. a really neat kind of rhetorical strategy. Um, it's still well, known as the people's church, by the way. Oh, really? That's amazing. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> like people in the, in the community still call it that. I think there's even a, there might even be like a, a placard on the side of it. I'm trying to remember. Uh, huh. but yeah, yeah. And yeah. That's really cool. Here in Canada, there's a tradition of uh, the People's Church as well. Started um, in the like right before the 20s and into the 30s, um, People's Churches. They were labor churches, but um, same kind of thing, same kind of rhetorical move, I guess. Um, well, we're we're getting up to the end of the hour, um, but before we do kind of sign off, maybe uh, we could ask you a, a sort of semi-personal but interesting question, and and then close out on a question we always try to close out on. So. In the introduction to your book, um, you write, this is a, a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's worth reading. So you say, uh, my goal is to offer one partial, perspectival, and contingent, critical, interpretive engagement of the young lords that grapples with the geographic and body political situatedness of their discourse and activism, as well as my own position as a diasporic Puerto, Rico, Puerto Rican academic who is thinking and writing from within the global south rather than dominant Euro-American-centric modalities. So you say later on uh, that doing this project sort of drew you into like really intimate connections with former young lords, like you describe, you know, being in their houses and talking with them. Uh, but you also remained an outsider in the actual neighborhood. Um, and a lot of really interesting stories in your introduction kind of draw that out. But uh, after doing this project, um, how do you now relate to that identity that you articulate at the end of that quote? Um, what's it like to be a, a Puerto Rican academic informed by the young lords uh, in light of, say, like the Trump administration or, you know, Hurricane Maria? It's like Puerto Rico is sort of a, a news item now, um, but it's not a, you know, it's not a, a uh, well, it's sort of frustratingly politicized in certain ways, it seems. So, yeah, I mean, do you have anything to kind of add to that in this particular context? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um I mean, to to me, like the connection between the the ideas and the kind of positionality that I'm trying to grapple with in the book, um, and the kind of Trump administration's reaction to Hurricane Maria, uh, or to to you know to kind of uh, refugees and asylum seekers on the border right now, um, I think the the connection between those is that that you know in both cases we're dealing with the um, the kind of the, the kind of persistence of coloniality uh, in the contemporary era, right? It's coloniality that uh, that that enables um, the kinds of exclusive Eurocentric, American-centric theoretical perspectives that have cachet uh, within academic circles, um, and it's coloniality that undergirds. Uh, kind of understanding of the border uh, that's that's kind of like tied to this fiction of sovereignty um, that uh, that 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 kind of you know authorizes you know Trump uh, and other presidential administrations to militarize this space uh, and try to create kind of clear markers between us and them um, uh, you know in in that place. So I think that, you know, to me, thinking about like what's happening in uh, on the border or what's happening you know, with the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, where, you know, where we're still you know, we're not even dealing with the kind of aftermath of colonialism because Puerto Rico is still a colony. Um, you know, most recently with PROMESA, uh, you've got a board of people who are able to make decisions about like closing down schools and privatizing different sectors of the economy um, in ways that are, you know, that are not really in the best interest of the Puerto Rican people, um, but are in the best interest of the shareholders who are trying to, like, make good on the debts that are owed to them, right? Uh, and so, you know, and so, you know, rather than turning to, like, 
alternative energy sources, for example, um, as as a, a, a colleague of mine, Catalina de Onis, would would say, um, they you know they're they're just trying to kind of like put a bandaid on a, a fundamentally kind of broken uh, energy infrastructure uh, that's not good for the planet uh, and not good for the island uh, and is rooted in kind of logics of exploitation and possession, right? Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> I started to think about the connections between these things, right? When, um, you know, when, when I'm confronted with them, but yeah, yeah, no, I think that's kind of what I'm curious to hear about, you know, is exactly like how do these, uh, these things that appear as stories in the news or they might appear as part of like, you know, like a monologue on a late night TV show or they're kind of, um, they're talking points, uh, but um, they they are part of real material histories that have like real material effects, you know, like like when Stephen Colbert or Samantha Bee stops talking about Puerto Rico, it will still be a colony. Uh, it will still be sort of affected by these actual decisions. So, yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to hear about. Well, yeah. And actually, I'm glad you, I'm glad you, you, you mentioned history because I wanted to make the point that, you know, in a place like Puerto Rico, um, that that history of um, of colonialism, right, is what this is is what the present crisis is about, right? This, you know, Hurricane Maria was not just this one event of a kind of natural disaster hurting the island. This is a structure of domination that goes back hundreds of years, right? That has put Puerto Rico in the place that it is now, which was, which was, you know, its energy infrastructure was teetering on the brink of collapse uh, when the hurricane came through. It was just it was just pushing over the, you know, a domino that that, that made everything fall down. Same things happening on the uh, with on the border right now. This isn't about uh, just these individual people who are trying to uh, seek refuge here in the United States. Uh, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's you know, it's the the same U.S. colonial policies that accru- that created these problems in Puerto Rico, that created problems throughout Central America and South America, uh, that create the push pressures. Um, that are the, the, the make people come north, right? Uh, but but kind of there's there seems to be a lack of awareness about that stuff, right? In the in a lot of the mainstream media discussions about either of these issues, um, and a lack of awareness about uh, about the kind of you know the, the 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 racial and colonial structures of the laws that govern things like asylum and immigration, right? That someone like Sessions points to. Yeah, I think that's a helpful note. Just um, re- like the the media narrative uh, paints it in a really particular and kind of hollow way that doesn't get at what's happening. Well, um, lastly, we have sort of a stock question we try to ask everyone who comes on the podcast. Um, so here it is. Uh, what do you think Christians should know about Young Lords um, as a historical movement? And uh, what do you think people who are invested in leftist movements and histories should know about Christianity? Um, I mean, I think uh, in terms of what Christians should know about the young lords, um, I think uh, to me the, the, what they should know is kind of encapsulated in a lot of ways by that uh, that Juan Gonzalez clip from earlier. Right? The young lords uh, held commitments to social social justice ideals uh, that you know, that come from strict, that at least can be identified in scripture in very clear ways. And so thinking about um, uh, the young lords offers us an opportunity to, uh, to examine, you know, modes of activism um, and the, and the potentials for activism within local communities that, uh, that otherwise you might not, might not think readily think about uh, in terms of what people who are invested um, in leftist movements and histories should know about Christianity. Um, I think uh, uh, for me, it would be that uh, it would kind of relate to that notion of overlap that I was just talking about and that we talked about a little bit earlier uh, that I think there's uh, there is strength in uh, in occupying the position of a yes rather than the position of a no. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, you know, even even if uh, you are, you know, ideologically opposed to the idea of religion, uh, even if you are, you know, the most diehard atheist, 
sometimes uh, uh, approaching your message from that position is not the best way uh, to invite people in uh, and to create strength uh, within the kind of organizing that you're trying to do. And I, I think that's something that the young lords, that the young lords intimately understood, this idea that we can't just come in and, and criticize Christianity a hundred percent, right? We have to find those points of connection that uh, that can create uh, opportunities for collaboration, as contingent as they might be, uh, to be able to move forward uh, and do good. Oh, that's a great note. That's uh, definitely what we're always trying to, um, I think, explore on this podcast. Is like, how can you uh, find ways to say yes to these kinds of histories um, that don't like ignore their complexities, but uh, maybe point like a different way forward. So, yeah. Um, well, thanks so much, Daryl, for this book and uh, for talking to us about it. I feel like we really uh, learned a lot and um, I'm still like, I keep rereading sections of your book trying to uh, work out how to, I guess, keep thinking with the young lords about what it might mean to have a people's church. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, I would suspect if I went to my parish this Sunday, uh, they probably wouldn't listen to me either uh, if I got up and spoke at the end. But um, yeah, maybe someday. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on and for uh, for this great conversation about the Young Lords. I mean, I, I, I'm so happy to do it, and thank you. Uh, thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you liked what you heard, definitely go out and check out Daryl's uh, book. It's really, really great. We can't say enough good things about it. Um, there's just a lot, a lot of good stuff. History, theory, something for everybody. Uh, also, if you like what you heard, you can find more of us, the the Magnificast, on Twitter at the Magnificast, on Facebook also the Magnificast, and we have a discussion group there, uh, the Magnificast Basement. So you can chat a little bit more about these and other topics. Um, also, some podcast news: uh, we set up a shop online. At uh, you can order some stickers that we made. That's the big news. I uh, got some cool stickers, and you can also get shirts through them as well. Uh, but it's Redbubble.com/people/TheMagnificast. So check that out. Um, and also another piece of news uh, for people who are signed up on our Patreon, which is at Patreon.com/TheMagnificast. Uh, and who are giving two dollars and up uh, we're going to send you a really cool pin uh a uh, an enamel pin based on the um the communist crucifix uh that is also a sticker on the Redbubble site so it's going to take some time to actually like get them made and have them sent to us and then send them out to everyone else but if you want one uh it's going to cost you at least two bucks by july 1st so go ahead and sign up um on patreon and Hopefully you'll stick around. Uh, really thankful for everybody who supports the show so consistently. So this is just uh, one way of saying thanks. Uh, as always, the music for the podcast comes from Amoria Armstrong, and uh, the outro is from The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church We'll meet down by the riverside There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday there'll be no day